0: Welcome to the Global Governance Podcast, where we explore the future of governance. Each episode will look at a different global issue and how governance plays a key role in its solution. From climate change to gender equality, from corruption to peace and security, we invite experts to explore a thought-provoking game of what if and why not, positing a world in much closer international cooperation.
1: welcome to this special episode of our podcast series taking place in madrid at the instituto de empresa one of spain's leading universities the title of today's conversation is rethinking global affairs to confront global challenges we have today with us jody williams the founder of the international campaign to ban landmines and a Nobel Peace Laureate in 1997. Maria Fernandez Pinoza, who was the President of the United Nations General Assembly in 2018 and is a former Foreign and Defense Minister of her country, Ecuador. And then Susana Malcorra, who was Minister of Foreign Affairs in Argentina, but also spent many, many years as a senior official in the United Nations, most recently as Chief of Staff of Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. Maria Fernanda and I were in New York last September participating at the Global Futures Forum, and we were both... uh, somewhat surprised, uh, perhaps, by the extent to which there seemed to be great concern among the people that we met in the the meetings that we participated about the global challenges that we are currently facing and the extent to which not facing up to these challenges is likely to create great disturbance and and problems for us in, in coming years. And so, I would want to begin this conversation with uh, Jody, with Maria Fernanda, and with Susana, by perhaps mentioning briefly three or four you know, global challenges that come to mind as we survey the international scene. A few weeks ago, the United Nations Environment Programme said that there is no viable path to keeping global temperatures to one-and-a-half degrees centigrade, um, which was the benchmark established in the Paris Agreement in 2015. We know that climate change will destabilize not just our environment, but our economies, and possibly our political and social order. Um, So, very much, climate change is perhaps at the top of our concerns at this particular moment in our history, but not only. Um, we have seen in recent decades an unravelling of our nuclear order. Um, Article 6 of the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons makes a very clear call to pursue negotiations in good faith on the effective cessation of nuclear arms, uh, the nuclear arms race. Uh, And in particular, it calls for a process of nuclear disarmament. As you know, this treaty is perhaps the most extensive treaty. It has been signed by close to 190 member countries. Instead, what we have seen in recent years is not only no steps taken towards disarmament, but in fact, we see many of the global powers expanding their nuclear arsenals and we see heightened tensions on the international Uh, seen among uh, some of the major global nuclear powers. And of course, we have had as well, because of COVID in in the last two to three years, uh, setbacks on the poverty front. Um, We have seen for the first time a reversal in the reduction of extreme poverty that we had seen over the last several decades. And of of course, we have also seen a remarkable increase in income inequality. And then perhaps not to make this list too long, um, we see a a, a context in which in countries like Iran, um, an autocratic regime uh, persecutes religious minorities. And as we saw in recent months, makes life for women and girls extremely difficult by essentially turning them into second class citizens so it is a very disturbing landscape that we are that we are facing and so with that background i will now turn to susanna for my first question and it is the following susanna the covid-19 pandemic has brought huge disruptions to our established order. The lockdown resulted in the collapse of economic activity, plunging more than 100 million people into extreme poverty and worsening an already serious problem of income inequality. My question to you to kick off this discussion today is what are some of the lessons you see emerging from the pandemic that have a bearing on the future of our economic system on international cooperation and the future of multilateralism?
2: Well, the first lesson is that we were not prepared for it. And it's not for lack of warning. It was clearly stated that this was going to happen. And by the way, it's going to happen again. So leaders did not pay attention to it. The notion of immediacy of the problem of today, really showed a total lack of focus on preparedness. The second is that a pandemic is, by nature, global. In fact, some people use say global pandemic is redundant. A pandemic is global. But we tackle it with very localized solutions. So that not only slowed the solution of the pandemic, getting out of the pandemic, but it created a big tension between North and South because of the lack of a empathy and sympathy for what was happening in the South. And again, it delayed the solution of the pandemic. The third is that the pandemic, a health pandemic, is not a health issue. It's a multiple factors issue. Yes, it is health, and at the beginning it was clearly health, but the intertwined problems that the pandemic created, economic, social, political, are so big that they need a multi solution. And for that, I would say, the multilateral system was not up to it. WHO is part of the solution, but cannot tackle the solution. You need the, the Bretton Woods institutions, you need the regional banks, you need a much more comprehensive solution. And I think that's something we need to learn. We need to put a crisis response model that is able to tackle the, the pandemics to come. And the third is exactly that. Are we going to commit to solutions that can address future, future pandemics? You know, everybody is now talking about this pandemic uh, pact and uh, part of the, of, of the process. I very much doubt that Member States will adhere to the very, very challenging commitments that should come with such a pact. So if it's not binding, it's not useful. Again, pandemics show, the COVID show, that a global tackling of the problems is absolutely necessary, that we need to step up to it, and that against all odds, against the undercurrents that we have today, we need to reinforce those global responses, and we need to commit to solutions that go beyond the local, the national, and the regional. Otherwise, we will not be able to solve
1: what is coming our way very soon. Thank you, Susanna. Jody, building building up a little bit upon something that Susanna said, it seems to me that one of the one of the problems that we, we have sort of confronted with the pandemic is what I would call a kind of a lack of good priorities in terms of public spending. You know, we spend too much money uh, uh, subsidizing energy, we spend vast resources building up our military establishments, you know, defense, and so on. Um, we have a notion of national security that is sort of unduly focused on, on uh, sort of the military, military preparedness, weapons, and so on. Now, you have written a lot about the concept of human security. Mm -hmm. Um, something that presumably is more linked to human welfare rather than just, you know, the military. If you could just elaborate a little bit for us, this concept of human security.
0: Sure. It's a pleasure. Human security, as you just said, uh, focuses on the security of human beings. National security focuses on the security of the state apparatus, right? And under the national security framework, it is implied that, you know, if the apparatus of the state is, is secure, its citizens are secure, which is absurd if you look at many of the countries in the world that have big military budgets relative to their resources and the degrees of poverty in those countries. It's ridiculous. I'll use my own, um, the U.S. A couple of years ago, I did a piece, and I was looking at the um, discretionary budget of the U.S. I think it was in 2020. More than 57% of the discretionary budget of my country went to the military. 57%. I think it was 3% that went to education, 3% that went to health, 3% that went to the State Department. Now, all you have to do is look at a country's budget and how they spend their money to see what their priorities are and if their priorities are actually dealing with the needs of their people. Recent studies have shown that you know, people around the world are very disturbed by what's happening in the world. Of course, climate change is freaking everybody out. Well, probably not if you own BP or Exxon or one of those fun companies, but the normal human beings are freaked out. Um, They're freaked out about the disparity of wealth. I'm freaked out that a handful of multi-billionaires control more resources than most of the world. Um, We need to stop looking at the world through the lens of how many weapons can we have to make us safe. i got to look at that. Oh, God, I'll keep talking. Um, Do we feel safe today with Russia threatening to use nukes? I know I don't. I grew up with the nuclear generation and hiding under my desk in grade school to learn how to save me from a direct nuclear attack. Insane. It's insane. We need to focus on what makes a dignified life, a healthy life, uh, jobs that make people feel like they're contributing to society, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and saving our planet. That's
1: human security. Maria Fernanda, you have been uh, very active and have been a strong voice in the the climate change debate and sort of the environmental discourse. With emissions uh, rising since 2015, you know, the Paris Agreement, and our scientists increasingly alarmed Mm -hmm. about the lack of a viable path, you know, to bring emissions down. You know, what are your main concerns? And in particular, you know, how can we strengthen the implementation of the commitments that were made by countries in, in 2015, number one? And how can we also shift the focus to the intergenerational dimension of climate change? You look at the audience here. You know, many of, of these are young women and men. They will bear the brunt of our inaction, our, our irresponsibility.
3: Well, first of all, thank you to IE University and the Global Governance Forum. Uh, I think it's a, it's a great space. We started, high st- with Mr. Borrell, and, and here we're discussing key issues such as climate change. And I often say that climate change is not a problem. It's a symptom. It's like when we, you have a fever. The fever is not the illness. And what is happening is that climate change is a symptom of a dysfunctional relationship between our economies, our political systems, and our production and consumption patterns. Why is it so difficult? We have the knowledge, we have the technologies, we we know what we have to do, but what we have to do is challenging our own lifestyles. What we have to do is challenging the power structures that we have, the power of some companies, uh, corporate power. You mentioned a name, but we can cite many, many names uh, as well. So that's why after 27 Conference of the Parties, Quasi-28 times we have met as an international community to take decisions on how to curb emissions. And yet we are where we are. Emissions continue to grow. What to do? And, and, And I think here there is an intergenerational responsibility. We have the frameworks in place. And what we need is both. Uh, a civilizational uh, shift in terms of values, in terms of thinking about the future, in terms of new political leadership that is responsible. Uh, We need a reconciliation with nature. We we need a new pact of love with with nature in a way. And Basically, we are seeing at the normative level some interesting developments. Uh, um, an advisory opinion to the International Court of Justice on climate responsibility. We have seen legal rulings in Germany, New Zealand, in Ecuador uh, at the constitutional level, at the high courts level on the state responsibility on the climate crisis. And and here again, um, when we heard inequalities are growing, poverty, Extreme poverty in particular is is growing. That also translates into the climate discourse. Why? Because the highest price of the climate catastrophe is being paid by the smallest countries, by the the small island developing states. We came up last COP with a loss and damage fund. The the loss and damage fund is empty. It's an empty box. We need to really make uh, the decisions to finance and to fund climate resilience and climate adaptation in the Global South countries. I don't like very much the Global South, but let's say the developing low and middle income uh, countries. It's a political decision. We need the political will and the intergenerational responsibility to make it happen. But we have to make some concessions on our own lifestyles. And when, when I say uh, own lifestyle, we. I talk about the wealthiest, the elites, and what Jody was mentioning, you know, that you are scared to death, looking at how um, the, um, uh, the very few own the majority of wealth and power in our world. So climate is about power, climate is about lifestyle. Um,
1: let me shift gears a little bit, um, come to you, Susana. One question which I'd like to pose to you is whether the European Union, um, you know, with its uh, history you know, going from six nations reducing trade barriers in 1957 to 27 nations today, having built up a huge institutional infrastructure you know, to support economic and political integration. I'm thinking about the, the Commission, the European Court of Justice, the Parliament, the Central Bank, and so on. Is that a potential template that we could use for international cooperation in the future in other parts of the world?
2: Well, first of all, I I think the European Union is one of the greatest creation of humankind, particularly because it came after two world wars and and, and these countries fighting and losing so many uh, resources, human, material resources and, 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 and the moral being so, so, so low. I think it's hard to think that this will replicate as such in the rest of the world. There are cultural differences. Some will argue that it takes two world wars to get there. you know. And so it, it, it is hard to, to predict a model that is based on, on such an assumption. Uh, I think that we clearly need to rethink the global structure we have, the global governance we have. Clearly the different regions need to come together better, particularly my region, our region, needs to do something about it. But whatever we have to do from here on, and and I started with with COVID showing how much that is needed, it will be done in in an environment that is essentially counter to the notion of integration. You know, there is a, an undercurrent in, at this moment throughout the world of a globalization being a bad word. And by the way, many things that globalization took were not good. So if we are to think about globalization to the future, it has to be 2.0. Many things need to, to be revisited. But the notion of isolation that is now permeating in the minds of many citizens, that is creating this reaction to, to integrating, that is creating these hyper-nationalistic perspectives, that is if giving the sense that hunkering down is the way to go, is the baseline from which we will have to reconstruct a new governance system. So what I will argue is that we are facing a huge challenge here, and only very enlightened people that understand that the global public goods are essential for the good of their own people will be able to put it together. It's a message that is counter to what resonates in many years these days. Politicians need to understand it and need to realize that sometimes you cannot be a follower of what social media says. You have to be a leader of your own people in order to make the changes that are needed. Um, Jody, in
1: 1968, the United States and the Soviet Union negotiated the treaty on the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. And eventually they persuaded 190 other countries to, to join them. And it is one of the most comprehensive treaties, which incidentally calls for uh, not only eliminating the nuclear weapons, but you know, in putting in place a process of disarmament, right? Now, recently you wrote an article uh, for the Global Governance Forum uh, uh, website in which she said the following, and I will quote, this is really very, very important. She said, instead of, a free, instead of a world free of the terror of nuclear weapons, we continue to naively believe that the world is made secure through nuclear deterrence. A blind belief in such a deterrence as a security policy has brought us to where we are today facing Russian president, Putin's threats to use them. This is a tough question for you, especially given the time constraint. How can we sort of bring ourselves back to the negotiating table to reverse some of these very perturbing trends?
0: I wish political satire were allowed at the moment, (laughs) but I'm supposed to be serious. Um, That is an $82.4 billion question. That is how much money the nine nuclear states spent in 2021 on their weapons. 82.4 billion. Um, When I wrote that piece, uh, a version of it appeared in Houston, Texas uh, Chronicle. I received an email from a military fellow who asked if I was, delusional in a polite way about Putin and his threats and, you know, if I wanted to really change the world on this, uh, I needed to lay out a plan of action. If I could lay out a plan of action that would be followed, I'd be the empress of the world or the empress of the universe. I think we need to use those levers uh, to put pressure on governments who I won't say pretend, but who put forth an image of being, you know, uh, women-centered foreign policy or, you know, a humanitarian neutral country uh, and make them actually walk the talk. Yesterday in Geneva, um, a new effort was launched and it is called the Peacemaking Covenant and it is based on um, eight peacemaking principles. I won't go into them because I don't have time. The states that were sponsoring it are Switzerland, Sweden, Germany, the Netherlands, and Denmark. They did two years of consultation with NGOs and international bodies, et cetera, to develop this covenant. And as I was thinking about it, and your question, I was thinking, wait a minute. How do these countries, which are producers and exporters of weapons of war, get off on promoting the peace-making covenant, the peace-making principles? If we really want to change this world, we have to pressure everybody who makes weapons not just the nuclear but of course since you know since cuban missile crisis i've wanted them gone um, but it won't happen if civil society doesn't get up and take action to pressure governments so they believe that we really care to get rid of the weapons you know the country oh, I have to stop. Sorry, people, I can go on.
1: My panelists are under a very strict order to limit their responses to three minutes, and you can see that I have been very effective in my role as moderator. She stopped in the middle of a sentence, right?
0: We, we, we self-destruct if we don't shut up. <laughs>
1: um, Maria Fernanda, um, three minutes or less. In 2020, the United Nations uh, commemorated the 75th anniversary of the signing or the adoption of the UN Charter. There were multiple events, uh, consultations, uh, open fora, uh, town meetings, and so on, Um, thinking and soul searching about the future of the United Nations. Um, Briefly tell us to what extent those, those events, you know, manage to give us a, a vision of where we want the United Nations to be on the 100th anniversary in 2045. And, uh, and uh, you know, how do we turn this uh, organization, which was born against the background of 60 million fatalities in World War II, into a problem-solving organization?
3: Problem-solving organization. Coming back to the 75th anniversary, you know, a little anecdote, I was the president of the General Assembly at the time, and I said, we need something big for the 75th anniversary. Well, my idea wasn't very popular at the beginning, and they say, one more commemoration, you know, people didn't see why and how, no, but we were able to agree on a process and on a resolution to commemorate the 75th anniversary. We did not want to organize a party, an anniversary party, but we did want, that was the intention, to unleash a global conversation about the future of the UN but not only within the UN premises, but the world, especially young thinkers, young change makers, women, scientists, and I think it did happen in many ways. and uh, That gave birth to what we have today, which I think it's a very ambitious, forward-looking UN 75 political declaration that at the time also um, gave a mandate to the Secretary General to produce a roadmap for the reform of the UN in the long run, which is the Our Common Agenda Report. And I mentioned the process because sometimes process is as important as content. The Our Common Agenda Report, even if not perfect, I think it's, it's a blueprint, it's, it's a pathway, to look at the future of the United Nations beyond the walls of the United Nations, beyond New York. And that's the purpose. In March 21st and 22nd, I'm doing a little ad here, but we have the Global People's Forum, perhaps the biggest global conversation on the future of the UN. In 2024, we are preparing for a big summit of the future precisely to bring audacious, creative, uh, retooling ideas for the United Nations. A new agenda for peace is in the making as we we speak. A new gender architecture for the organization. Uh, The way the institution organizes itself in the 21st century to respond, for example, to the digital revolution and how how to go about it. Uh, How to decide and discuss Uh, regulations for social media, for example, in how to tackle the 34, I think, active armed conflicts around the world. We continue to speak about Ukraine, and of course, we are all worried about Ukraine and what is happening, But, but there are more than 30 armed conflicts right now in the world where there are different levels of engagement of the international community. We have the situation of women in Iran and Afghanistan. So the world is in turmoil, but the solution cannot come from a institution. I was often asked why the UN doesn't do this or that, or why the UN doesn't respond to this and that. The answer is, we are the UN. And these are not only words. We the people's part of the UN Charter. So we all have a voice, we all have a say. The only thing is that we need a collective and shared plan. We need the strategy, we need the tactics, we need the narrative, and we need to know that we are part of this big challenge. And I think we are living a special moment of reinvention. I'm optimist. And I think that if we don't get our act together, here and now, we're going to be in big trouble of legitimacy, of accountability, and of performance of the multilateral system as a whole.
1: Yeah, Um, Susana the kind of conflicts that we're facing, you know, this sort of array of global catastrophic risks which threaten the future of humanity. And again, I'm looking at the audience and the, the young people in front of us, um, raises questions about the kind of leadership that we need in, in today's world you know, to confront these, these global challenges. And so my question to you is, is, it has two parts to it. Tell us briefly, what are the defining characteristics of good leadership in the 21st century in the face of, this, of these risks, number one? And number two, and I hate to put you on the spot, but I will, um, it's an important occasion, so I'll take that, uh, that prerogative. Um, we have 193 uh, uh, prime ministers, heads of state, you know, corresponding to the 193 members of the United Nations. Uh, do many of them have what it takes?
2: <laughs> well, you don't put me in the, on the spot. I think that's the right question, particularly when we face young people like we do today. By the way, that's the hope we have. You know, that's what makes us think that there is a future there. Uh, we as a generation have failed to them, clearly. All the indicators show that. Uh, first of all, I believe that Power needs to reflect society. And we are not there, clearly. Uh, When we see the profile of the leaders of the world, and this is not only in political terms, also in corporate terms, we see that half of society is not represented there. Women are essentially missing. Among the 193 that you mentioned, there are only very few women, and by the way, we got up this morning, we woke up with a very, very bad news that Jacinda, the, the, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, is stepping down. You know, she was one of the highlights of leadership in the world. Throughout COVID in particular, she showed that. So the first question is how we make sure that the society is properly represented. And by saying that, I mean women being in, in, in the power game. Second, you need to read problems through different lenses, given the complexity of the problems. And you need a much more nuanced approach to problem solving. You need to tackle questions in terms of grace. And men are not well equipped to do that, in general terms. Women are much more equipped to handle nuances. That's another reason why we need women, because of the complexity of the challenges we have. We need empathy, because putting yourselves in the other shoes is essential to tackling some of these problems. Again, not necessarily the best of characteristics in general terms for men. So my plea is here that we, really make it happen. It will take, in, in, with the trend we have today, it will take until the next century to get to, to parity in the world. Every statistic showed that. We need to be proactive. We need to shift dramatically the tools we use in order to increase women's participation. As a president of GWL Voices that advocates for that, I cannot not say it here. And in doing so, created create the the pool of leaders that really will reflect on what society needs in terms of understanding understanding society, because they are a reflection of society.
1: Thank, thank you, Susana. I'm going to uh, I'm going to um, do a little bit of, of shift in choreography because I am under some instructions from our hosts about the end time of this panel. And so what I will do, whether they like it or not, I'm on the stage, so they can't really move remove me physically from it. Uh, what we'll do is we'll collapse my, the last two questions into one, right? All right, uh, but still subject to the same uh, time constraint. So, so Jody, um, this, this question is a little bit provocative. Um, there was a, a, a famous professor from Johns Hopkins University a couple of decades ago who basically said, major war be- will become obsolete soon enough in the 21st century. Basically because in a world that is interconnected and fully integrated, um, the costs of war become insurmountable, insurmountable. Not only that, but, but of course as well, the, the utility of military, the military force the utility of violence is becoming increasingly ineffective. Right? Look at Afghanistan, look at Iraq, look at Ukraine today. You know, using force and killing people to achieve political end seems to be a very futile end. Right? So my question to you is, is peace inevitable in some sense? Will it, will it become, um, will it come as a result of um, conscious choice or you know, untold human suffering. Susanna said that it took two world wars to get Europe to where we are today. Is it going to take a third world war, you know, to get the world where we are today, number one. And number two, the, the, the example that you have set for young people in the world with the work that you'd lead, you did leading to the landmines land uh, treaty you know, suggests the possibility of a very important role for the individual and for civil society in innovations in the area of international cooperation. Please tell some words of encouragement to these young people so that they can look at the future with some hope, you know, that this is not now going to end in some kind of huge calamity associated with climate change or some other, some other risks.
0: Or the nuclear weapons and Mr. Putin and- some of the other, the other people. Um, whether or not peace is inevitable, I have no idea. If we look at what keeps happening in the world, um, war and violence is still a very popular thing. Um, I think the reason, one of the many reasons that uh, wars continue to happen is because there is a marriage, if you will, between governments, departments of defense, universities that provide research for weapons making, now the marriage of artificial intelligence and weapons, where weapons on their own will be able to select and kill a target there won't be human beings involved in that decision, which is totally mind-boggling, totally immoral, totally unethical. And yet, gajillions of dollars are being spent on those weapons, and some of them are being tested in the war in Ukraine. So what will it take to make peace inevitable? is people caring enough to participate in bringing about positive change. And that does not mean you have to love everybody in the world. This business about love, love, love. I don't like most people, to be quite honest. Uh, I rarely invite people to my house for dinner and to spend the night, forget about it. But we are all part of the so-called human family. And if we don't think about, we can do it egotistically. I want peace because it'll do something for me. Cool if it helps other people, but I really want it to help me. But that takes choice, takes decision-making every single day about what you are, who you are, what you want to be, and how you're going to move forward to make a contribution. You don't have to be a full-time activist. People think, you know, if, I, if I'm not a full-time activist, I can't do this, you know, I can't participate. That's ridiculous. There are millions of ways to participate. And if I had time, I would give you a few examples of participation in the landmine campaign that were rocking it, man. they were unbelievable. And these were not full-time activists. Whatever, uh, um, whatever makes you the most irritated, find an organization working on resolving that irritating issue, and volunteer. I started as a volunteer. I was a full-time teacher. I started volunteering on El Salvador. Uh, A jillion years later, I made my parents happy with the Nobel Peace Prize. (laughs) Neither of them finished high school, so it was, I am going to take a couple seconds. Um, Because I shut myself up earlier. I'm going to Nobel name drop. Two of my closest male Nobel friends uh, are His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu, who died last year. And each of them individually, on different occasions, different forums, said, uh, Men have ruined this planet for millennia. It is about time that men step aside and let women clean up the mess.
1: Absolutely. Uh, as the only man on this panel, I fully, 100% agree. We have made a mess of this world. <laughs> Maria, the last question to you. All right? Kurt Mayer was a young man in his 20s, and he was a member of the American delegation to the the 1945 conference where the charter was adopted. He was a veteran. He had lost an eye uh, in the battles in Europe. And he wrote the following in a very insightful article in the Atlantic in 1945. He said, a major power can violate every principle and purpose set forth in the charter and yet remain a member of the organization by the lawful use of the veto power especially granted into it. Uh, you know, it seems like a very pertinent description of Russia today, right? So my question is, is the veto the original sin of the United Nations? Will the veto ultimately doom the United Nations into irrelevance, or can we strengthen the organization and improve its effectiveness perhaps by limiting its use or by some other artful legal maneuver?
3: Well, I think that we all agree that the veto power is undemocratic and has caused many problems. No? Uh, and uh, there are, there is more and more traction among the P5 members that there is a need to transform the way the, the Security Council does business, uh, and uh, and I think that this sentiment is growing because uh, they see that they can run against them, you know, at some point. Uh, but uh, sometimes people focus on the veto issue. I think that the retooling, the rejuvenation of the United Nations, is a, is a bigger enterprise. The veto is one right exclusive to the P5 um, in the Security Council world, but the organization is much bigger. And I think that when we look at a reform process, as a structural reform process, we have to look at all the bits and pieces. The Our common agenda allows for that. Uh, And and by the way, there was a historical resolution that passed in the General Assembly, which for me is the most powerful body of the United Nations, is the parliament, where everybody has the same button to vote, the same microphone to speak, and the same power, regardless of square kilometers or or GDP. That's where the democracy uh, of the United Nations uh, needs to happen, and that's why a reform process of the General Assembly is also uh, much, much needed. And there are three things. Let me just close with three, uh, three ideas. The issue of, of performance. Uh, I think one of the biggest deficits of the UN, of the multilateral system, is the one on Uh, delivery, performance, and compliance. And we need to come with a system that allows for that. Deeds and not words. People get tired of hundreds of resolutions that get passed and are not complied with. Number two, the issue of the decision-making processes. What is consensus? And, And believe me, I have used that. Consensus is not unanimity. You know, it's a larger majority that is acting on behalf of humanity in a way. And these kinds of categories of decision making need to really make a big stride when we're thinking about overall reform. And the last, it's not the only one, but we need a new definition of sovereignty, of national sovereignty and national interest, no? Uh, with regard to our collective well-being, our collective security, our common goods. What, what are we doing with our commons, including a stable climate, including outer space, including our oceans, et cetera, et cetera. So these are the fundamental things that need to happen. You know, uh, these are the issues. We have now the raw material uh, and the political momentum to make it happen but it's not going to happen indoors at the UN as mentioned. So we are here because we are the we, the people's part of the system. And we need the creativity, the intelligence, the audacity of young scholars like you are. And so uh, I think it is time now. And just join uh, this, the Global People's uh, Futures Forum in March. Be connected and tuned to the preparation of the Summit of the Future in 2024. There, there, the space is there, the traction is there, the political atmosphere is there. So it's now or never. That, that's my opinion. It's now or never.
0: Thank you for listening to the Global Governance Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. To learn more, please visit globalgovernanceforum.org and join the conversation.